The reading today is from Luke chapter 22, verses 21 to 46. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed me with me in the trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. As he said to them, when I sent you out with no money, bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has the money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And, he be and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and a sweat like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If you keep that passage there open in front of you, I think you'll find that helpful. Hopefully you've got one of the sheets as you sort of came in. Uh, and so you'll find it there on that. If not, there are some uh, Bibles in the pews in front of you, so hopefully you'll be able to find um, your way through one of those. We've finished our sort of journey through Romans, and so now we'll uh, look as we come towards Easter to Jesus' journey 
uh, towards the cross together. So over the next few weeks, uh, we'll take some time to sort of see that. And we'll look particularly in, in Luke's gospel to do that. Jesus's whole life has really led up to this moment and been for this moment. And the thing that I hope that you'll sort of take away from this morning, if nothing else, is uh, a bit like Blackadder, God had a very cunning plan. And everything that happens to Jesus, and that's really the point of these verses this morning, has happened according to God's plan. And I hope that you might find some encouragement in that, because I hope you might find encouragement for yourself, where maybe life is loud, maybe life is a little messy, maybe it's a bit scary or stressful in some parts, that God has a plan over your life too. And Jesus' journey to the cross goes according to God's plan. It shows that God's kingdom isn't like the world. It fulfills scripture and we find that he's powered by prayer through it. And those are the four points we'll sort of look at this morning. If you look there just to those first few verses, verse 21 to 23, in your Bible there, if you're reading it on your phone or just printed Bible there in front of you, you'll notice that this is sort of separated out into different sections. And these verses are in a previous section. Uh, the Bible is, is written initially in Greek. It's written in common Greek. In fact, it's written in just capital letters. Zero punctuation, not even upper and lower case. So verse numbers, paragraphs, chapter numbers don't exist. We've had to give our best guess at it. And sometimes they don't do a very good job. And I include these verses here because you actually need to see the transition. It's picking up from the Passover meal. They've shared an intimate meal together as friends. And it moves immediately towards Jesus' passion journey, his journey towards his death and resurrection. We're told here, but behold, Jesus is speaking, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. A great meal has suddenly turned. And the natural reaction, which we see here, is to think, well, who is going to betray him? Who is this? As you skip ahead one verse and you see that reaction, they began to question. In fact, they began to argue with one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? Now, of course, we, if we're following through Luke's gospel, know who it's going to be on, on the one hand. We, the readers... We know the betrayer is going to be Judas. We know that the deal has already been done. You can see in verses 1 to 6, Luke outlines that. That Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, the religious leaders basically, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. We know that. The disciples don't. Judas, in league with the religious leaders, influenced by Satan, has agreed to sell Jesus out. But those at the table do not know this as they sit with Jesus. So they argue, who is it who will do this? And look at Jesus' response. And here's why I put it here. And it's the organizing thought of everything that goes on in these next few verses. That's why it's actually better for the two sections to be put together. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, verse 22, or as it has been planned. 
Everything that will happen to Jesus, Jesus wants them to know at the outset is going to happen according to God's plan. Doubtless Judas is responsible. There's a human personal responsibility for what he does. Jesus says that there too, doesn't he? Woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. But the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. All that's happening to Jesus is happening according to the plan and purposes of God. And that's important to know right at the outset. And that really is the main point of the sermon today. But what plan would it be? Skip ahead now just to those next few verses, verses 24 to 30. He's going according to plan, but what plan? Well, we see the plan is not much like the plan or the purposes or the kingdom of the world. Bob Dylan once sang in the song, The Times Are Changing, the line it has drawn, the curse it is cast, the slowest now will later be fast. As the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, because the times, they are a-changing. And here we find with Jesus, with the plan of God that is being fulfilled through him, that it is a very different kind of a plan. It's not the kind of plan we would have written, and it is one which is turning things upside down. And yet look at how the disciples respond here, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And that might seem like a strange argument, but I think it very naturally follows on from their argument in verse 23. They began to argue about who's going to be the one to sell Jesus out. I think that very naturally leads into, well, I'm not going to be the one to sell him out. And if anything, the thing is, who, which of us is the best? It's ironic, isn't it? Because Jesus has not long finished talking about his sufferings over the course of the meal. Verse 15, here he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We know from John's gospel that Jesus has spent time over the course of this meal washing their feet and speaking about how he's had to serve them. And in that context, here are the disciples having an argument about which of them is the greatest. It's a strange argument, isn't it? And it's very clear that that message of Jesus has not gone in. He's given all of this great, profound, beautiful teaching. No problem in his wording, no problem in his clarity, but it has not gone in. They argue about who's the greatest. Before we get too self-righteous, we do this all the time. We do this every day. We go for promotions and we compete to look the best. We try to be and to look and to feel more successful than other people. We feel down when we feel as though that we're not. Siblings constantly compete with one another. Bands, teams fall apart because some people want to be greater than others. Pastors compete over numbers and influences in cities and towns. It's ugly, it's selfish, it's destructive, it's embarrassing, isn't it? But it's also completely normal. 
It's all completely normal, completely expected. He said, listen to Jesus' response, verse 25 to 26 here. He said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves Those who are seemingly great, who have certainly formal positions of that within the world, exercise lordship over others, and they are called benefactors. The whole idea is there's very little sense of a welfare state in this day and age. It just doesn't exist. There's no support net sort of really for people. There are ways in which the government really just doesn't do a good job of basic amenities and necessities for life. And so what would happen is, in this context, some people would hugely benefit from this. There's some people who have become incredibly wealthy uh, and have great resources. And one of the things they might do is throw a few crumbs to everyone else in society uh, by being a benefactor, by generously giving out of some of their wealth. But it was generosity that was always loaded. They did it in order to get the blue plaque. They did it in order to get a statue in their name. They did it in order to be celebrated and revered. Ah, this is the gift given by Mr. Fisher. An honor would have to be given in the public space. The name would have to be celebrated. They'd be benefactors. In the world, people love to exercise rulership over people. They love to, even if they do give, to be celebrated and to be honored. Not so amongst you. This is a stupid argument, isn't it? Because rather than even seeking to be the greatest, which they'll never be, Jesus is, they should instead seek to be lowly and to serve. Jesus says, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And we know that, don't we? It's the one who is served by others that is greatest. But listen to what he says, verse 27. But I am among you as the one who serves. The King, Jesus, has come to be a servant. He is a king like no other king that we know. He is the servant who serves us all. And the point here isn't, you know, we we skip too quickly to think about how this shapes what we should do. Primarily the point that Jesus is making for us here, and Luke including it here, is about who Jesus is, not what we do. That Jesus is the servant. That he serves us. He said that as he's washed their feet, and John focuses on that aspect of it, but both John and Luke are picturing the same thing, that Jesus is remarkably, amazingly, presenting himself as servant. And then there's a taste of greatness here. Verse 28 to 30. See, the reason to live as servants and lowly now, because there is that implication for us, isn't there? Luke is expecting that that would be a response for us too. So is Jesus as he's saying that. The reason to live as servants and lowly now is to experience greatness. The greatness of Jesus' kingdom in eternity. You're those, he says, who have stayed with me in my trials. 
That's actually a very generous sort of summary of the disciples so far. It's massively reassuring for the disciples, isn't it? Although, you might want to caution that the trials are about to get a whole lot worse. <laughs> the trials have barely just begun for the disciples, but true, they've stayed with Jesus. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones and rule. The one true great one is Jesus. But the reward for faithful service and following now is a slice of his kingdom into eternity. All that's happening to Jesus is going to be happening according to the plan and the purposes of God. But secondly, all that's happening in and through Jesus reveals that God's plan and God's kingdom is not like that of the world. But then thirdly, we might ask, well, why is it happening this way? If you look there from verse 31 down, what we see is that it is fulfilling scripture. Look at Jesus' response there. He turns to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, he returns to his original given name. Jesus has renamed him also Peter, but now actually he's gone back to his birth name here. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I imagine Jesus desperately straining for Peter to take this in. I imagine that arm going around the shoulder, him looking into the whites of his eyes. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you. You do not know the trial in which you stand. He's demanded to take you. The, word, the you there is plural. The English doesn't kind of clue us in on that. He's saying he's demanded to have the 12 of you. That he might sift you like wheat. I think there's a weird encouragement in this. To know that your failings and your struggles are not just about your weakness, but that there actually is satanic activity. But that does maybe mean waking up to the spiritual reality we live in. Line from the French author Charles Baudelaire, later often quoted lots of places, but especially in the film The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And Jesus is desperate for Peter to realise the reality of the spiritual struggle we face. You know, Peter gets a tough rap, I think, doesn't he? Because his betrayal is very obvious. In a few verses' time, it's going to become really, really clear that Peter has uh, publicly denied and betrayed Jesus but actually all of the disciples will betray and abandon Jesus in the midst of this trial in Mark's account Jesus says to them you will all fall away for it's written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and he records that actually it wasn't just Peter that gave a very sort of vociferous response of no Lord I won't I'll stick with you but they all did as chapter 14, verse 31, they all said the same. It wasn't just Peter. 
And Mark's careful to note, chapter 14, verse 50, they all left him and fled in the garden. Yes, Judas betrays him. We see that here. We'll see that a little next week. Peter betrays him too, but they all betray him. But just before we get on our high horse, can we see anything of ourselves in the disciples? Do we have moments where we fail to reveal our faith because of the felt risk? Where we downplay the role of our faith? Where we hold back a word we should have said? Where we've maybe even felt embarrassed by our faith? Where we've, when truth be told, cared more about fitting in than anything else. They all wind up abandoning him. But I've prayed for you, Jesus says. And the you now becomes singular. The four times it's used now in verse 32, it's now singular. He's been talking, Satan has demanded all of you. Now Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that you that your, sorry, faith may not fail. And that when you've turned again, you strengthen your brothers. Jesus is concerned their faith will hold up. They will face many trials, arrests, imprisonment, beatings, hunger, riots. They'll eventually be killed. But the concern is that their faith holds. But I've prayed for you, he says. And what a wonderful encouragement that is, that Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, the King of kings, Lord of all, has already prayed for you the prayer that you didn't know you needed. He has already prayed. John puts it in one of his letters that we have an advocate with the Father, pleading on our behalf, Jesus. He's prayed the prayer you didn't know that you needed. For the toughest of moments. See, they're all actually invested in one another's growth, aren't they? That Peter, once he turns and is strengthened, is to go and to strengthen his brothers. Once he's patched up, he's to help the rest of them. And there's some important truths here, isn't there? That just because you fall doesn't mean you can't get back up by God's grace. Just because you fall doesn't mean you have nothing left to offer by God's grace. Because you fall, you may actually be able to help someone who's stumbling. Because you fall, you may wind up all the more aware of, dependent on, thankful for God's grace. In his grace, your falling might prove to be helpful. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. All the sentiment, none of the substance. And isn't that often us? The rooster will not crow this day, Jesus says. Those, the day won't finish. 
until you deny three times that you know me. And the thing is, Peter's not totally stupid here. He will do what he says in verse 33. He will. He will go even to prison for Jesus. He will even hold his faith even under threat of death. But not this day. Ironically, he was right. Acts records this. Chapter 4, 5, and 12, you see him imprisoned. Chapters 5 and 12, you see him staring down death. Which is encouraging. Because it tells us that a coward can become courageous in Christ. That instead of simply settling for comfort, you can have hope to stand by your convictions. He will do this, but not today. And Jesus was speaking to them all here in verses 31 to 34, but, but now uh, he was speaking to them all, sorry, by speaking to Peter. But now he's going to turn his attention to all of them in the next few verses. He said to them, verse 35 tells us, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, read of that in Luke chapter 9, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. Previously, they could go out and they could, in faith, rely on hospitality. But now something is changing because of Jesus. That's not going to be offered. But now, verse 36, there's a change. But now, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. The landscape is changing for the disciples And maybe we know something of this in our own culture, don't we? Because our culture has turned against the gospel that has formed so many of its values about equality, justice, dignity, care, love. Those are all values that have now been untethered from the gospel that produced them, and they've been, in fact, even turned against Christianity, haven't they? So where once there was an open ear and an open door to the gospel, evangelism is challenging now. It's not easy. It's tough work. It isn't just that people don't know anything much about the gospel because they don't go to church, but that is true. But it's more. It's that the general, the default sort of position and setting is hostility to the gospel. So that you have to do some work in order first to sort of deal with the hostility before you can ever really get to the acceptance of it. Let me put it in another way. Men who enjoy the music of Justin Bieber, for right or for wrong, I need some time to simmer down before we're ever going to get to the point of us sort of starting to be really close friends. I need a bit of time to work that through in my own head. Okay, now you can think that that's right or wrong, whatever, I'm just telling you that that's the way it is. This is the way it is. That the general default position is hostility, not hospitality. There's work there to do. You have to make the case almost why they shouldn't reject you before ever getting and trying to get to the place of accepting what you're saying. But the answer to that is not to give up, is not to be fickle, it's not to just try and love bomb people, to be fake, to be false. It's not to become a salesperson, to become fraudulent in the way that you put across the gospel. The answer is to get tough skin, but keep a soft heart, to not rely on the support of the world, and to be ready to defend your faith. And that's what Jesus wants the disciples to know here. But why the change? Why has hospitality turned to hostility 
for the messengers of the gospel? Well, here's Jesus' explanation. Look at verse 37. This scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered amongst the transgressors. For what's written about me has its fulfillment. And maybe the two bits there to circle around are in me and about me. This scripture must be fulfilled in me. For what's written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53. He's made a couple of sort of more subtle hints to it earlier on by speaking about how he is going to suffer, by describing himself as the servant. But now he's very much more clear. This servant song from Isaiah 53 is partly about Israel, God's servant who had suffered in the world. But it is not just about Israel. Because in those verses, the servant atones for our sins, it says. And so therefore, it can't just be about Israel, and it's not. And Jesus says, it's about him. If you have a Bible there with you and you're able to turn to it, I'd encourage you to do so, to read some of it. It's an incredible piece of poetry and imagery. And what's most interesting is the stark contrast between what Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the world around us. What he will do and what the world around us is like. Our world demands moral perfection. You have to always say and do everything that is right all of the time, all of your life. And so people, very many people, fear being called out or cancelled for not hitting expectations, sometimes that they didn't know existed, and sometimes that never used to exist. There is no idea of salvation out in the world around us, or of how you can be spared judgment and made right if you do fail. But Jesus, the suffering servant, It tells us here, verse 8 of Isaiah 53, was stricken for the transgressions of the people. If you fail in our world, everybody else is expected to stick the knife in before they're attacked for not attacking you. But Jesus, the suffering servant, takes the rejection, the shame, the scandal, and the cancelling you should face rightfully from God on himself. Verse 3 tells us, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The world doesn't have any sense of forgiveness. In fact, it hates the concept of forgiveness because why shouldn't they get to punish the wrongdoer? They, the wrongdoer should suffer. But Jesus, the suffering servant, chose to take the punishment we deserved in our place. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. The second we in the world face any sort of inconvenience or even imagine that we do, the world tells us that what we should do is cry victim and demand repayment. 
Jesus, the suffering servant, faces the pain, shame, and separation from God to save us and does not complain. It's in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the world, people wash their hands of anyone who fails because they can't risk being associated with them. Jesus, the suffering servant, came and lived and died alongside us and for us and with us. And they made his grave, verse 9 says, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All this had been God's plan to restore us to him, to redeem us from our shame, to remove his anger. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, verse 10 says. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of Jesus' suffering and anguish, we're made right before God because the perfect, sinless Son of God died for our sin Our sin is removed and is replaced by his righteousness. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And because Jesus was faithful, his father will honor him by giving him his kingdom, which he shares with us. Look at verse 12, how it ends there. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Here is the plan that Jesus is fulfilling. It's a costly plan. It's a painful one that involves great suffering on his part to bring great joy on ours. And the hostility comes because many people simply do not want to accept the sin and the brokenness that makes this necessary. And for all this, how will the disciples respond? Look at their response there, verse 38. Look, Lord, here are two swords. The entire focus really here is Jesus' revelation that he is this suffering servant, this great promise of redemption. And they're thinking about the swords. They've not got it yet. And maybe this is why Peter goes and in a few verses time will lop somebody's ear off with the sword because maybe he had misunderstood what Jesus had said. And then look at Jesus' response. It's the exasperated words of a parent It's enough. He's made it as clear as he could. They've not got it yet. They'll say themselves, in all honesty, after he was resurrected, we understood. We went back to everything he said and we realized it was all there for us, but we didn't get it at the time. It's enough, Jesus says. All that's happening to Jesus is the fulfilling of the scriptures and all they ever promised to us. It's all happening according to plan. It's a plan that's not like the world. It's a plan that's fulfilling scripture. And then lastly, we see Jesus powered by prayer. Because the question might be, how will these disciples stick it out? 
How will Jesus stick it up? But how will these disciples? He's powered by prayer. Look at this verse 39. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. How was Jesus able to be so decisive, whereas his disciples were so indecisive? Because he had good habits, regular prayer. Jesus wasn't like Clark Kent. It wasn't that whenever things were a struggle, he'd just whip into the phone booth and suddenly underneath the suit and the glasses is the Lycra Superman uniform. And all of a sudden now the superpowers come out. That's not Jesus. Jesus is fully human as well as fully God. What that means is he takes on and embraces and endures all of the same human weaknesses that we have and limitations, and yet was perfect. So that Jesus shows what we were always made to be like. He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why does he say this to them? There's a picture here hopefully, of this scene. I realize that I've read this verse, this little passage, very wrong for a long time. Because I always sort of thought this was a confusing section of Scripture here. I always thought he was basically saying, pray you don't fall asleep. Pray you don't zone out. Pray that you'll focus in on what's going on. I always imagine the disciples there fighting off sleep, a bit like Mr. Bean, sort of in church. And he's des- they're desperately trying to stay awake, but it's late, and they're tired, and they're exhausted, uh, emotionally as well as physically. And it's a bit sad, but also a bit comical. And you're just sort of thinking, well, you know, what's, what's the point of this little interaction? But Jesus is saying to them, Pray you don't fall into temptation during this satanic trial you will face from this moment forward. He's directing them to think about the future. Pray you don't fall into temptation, into what is to come. And think about Luke's readers, the first readers of Luke's gospel here, living in a hostile Roman empire in which they're persecuted for their faith, where the temptation is either one, shut up, or two, give up, or both. Luke is showing them through Jesus' words here and showing us that Jesus endured the temptation and trial he faced by committing himself to regular prayer. See, his humanity was such that he really was tempted and so really needed to pray and did, which also means he really did triumph over sin. It's a real victory. It's not a fake victory of, well, yes, he overcomes it, but it never really was a test in the first place. No, it it really was a test which makes the victory all the more special and important that he really has triumphed over sin for us. And then look at Jesus' prayer, lastly. And there's almost a comical contrast here between Jesus' laser-like focus on what's to come here and the disciples' ignorance. 
Look at his prayer. We see four quick things here. Firstly, there's a struggle, isn't there? Verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus' prayer is in part a struggle with God, isn't it? Jesus, yes, even Jesus, comes to the Father to see if there is another way. Knowing all the pain that is to come. Knowing that he is living out and stepping into this Isaiah 53 suffering servant who is going to be crushed for everybody else. There's a struggle. But secondly, he submits, doesn't he? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Although he struggles, he submits. And Jesus does it sooner than Jacob as he struggles with God. He doesn't have to have his hip put out. He does it of his own will. Not my will, but yours be done might be the most significant sentence ever uttered. Imagine if Jesus had not done that, but he did. Not my will, but yours be done. A willingness to do the thing no one else could do for everybody else. There's a struggle, he submits. And then he's strengthened, verse 43. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. He's not left alone by his father in this challenging hour. Even Jesus knows what it's like to have to be held up by God. And God is good to do that for him and for us too, sending his angels. There's a struggle he submits, he's strengthened, but fourthly, he's stressed. Verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Why is all of this included? That's probably a reasonable question, isn't it? Especially some of the bits that seem strange to see Jesus asking if there's another way. Jesus in great anguish and stress. I think it proves the legitimacy, doesn't it? This is the kind of thing that actually, if you attempted to make this up, you'd probably edit this out because you'd think that's a bit of a strange bit to be there. This proves the legitimacy. If Jesus didn't do this, it shows he's not really human. And the struggle isn't really real. And then look at the note it ends on here. He found them sleeping for sorrow. And so he says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That same encouragement and challenge. All that's happening to Jesus, he faces by being powered through prayer. As we close then, how about you? Have you been served by Jesus like this? The main thing this passage calls for us to do is not to do anything, but to believe what Jesus has done. Isaiah began chapter 53 by saying, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God reveals himself. Even knowing him and understanding him is not fully in our hands. We're reliant on God revealing himself to us. 
And yet we're called also to believe. There's a response there, isn't there? Belief, trust, and acceptance of what God has done for us in Jesus. You haven't lived up to God's standards, standards he can rightly expect as your creator. You can't hope to satisfy him with a meager bit of sort of virtue signaling. It'll simply not cut it. But in Jesus, God himself has faced our punishment, has faced our suffering, that we might walk free. So, do you believe? That's really the question to ask ourselves this morning. Do you believe in what he's done for you? You might not be sure of that yet. Then this really is the time to consider that. How do you want the story of your life to unfold? But if you do believe, there's hope in this account, isn't there? There's hope in this account of Jesus' walk to the cross. Not just for our salvation, though that's no small thing. But even for our own daily life. That we can entrust our own lives to God, knowing that they all ultimately go according to his plan. Being reassured that though it might not always look like the plans and the purposes and the values of the world, it's no less going according to God's plan. Knowing that all that will happen fulfills his scriptures. And being reassured that we can be powered through prayer, through the toughest of moments. We can be held up by God himself. That in the hardest of moments, Jesus, not only our saviour, but our advocate in our place, prays the prayer we don't know we need yet. That we can entrust ourselves to him. Let's pray and then we will sing a closing song together.